The Reef Therapy Podcast is powered by ICP Analysis. If you'd like to win a free saltwater ICP analysis kit and a freshwater analysis kit, all you have to do is leave a comment down below using the hashtag what's in your water. If you're listening to the audio only version, head on over to YouTube and you can enter in the comment section there. ICP Analysis will test over 50 elements down to parts per trillion. These tests can also be used to see if there's any undesirable elements in your aquarium as well. Register your aquarium on the ICP Analysis app, fill your sample, place it back into the bag, slap on that included postage, and have your results one to three days after it's received. More at icpanalysis.com. All right, welcome to episode number 95 of the Reef Therapy Podcast, powered by ICP Analysis. My name is Remy. I'm here with Raj and our special guest today, the legendary Walt Smith. Legendary makes me sound really old. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, Before we get started, I do want to allow Raj to tell us about the progress of his tank because there has been progress on his tank. (laughs) I feel like I'm being picked on here. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) But yeah, finally got my my sump ready and um, I posted it on social. So if you if you looked if you looked at my Instagram, um, I did a window and the return chamber and I got a little bit carried away because I wanted to make it cool. So I did the I did the whole octopus thing on it. But then we had this idea. Tim kind of came up to me and was like, hey, what if we wrap the window around the side, like make it a wraparound window on the front and on that left panel? And I'm like, well, that complicate things. Obviously, we're going to do that. <laughs> and uh, so we, I played with that, that art design like 20 different times at least, trying to make it work so that it would fold around. And how do we get that window to look good? in that corner. And so th- th- that was pretty challenging. Like this whole project is going to be. So finally sump is there. It's right at the tank and we're ready to go, go to town on plumbing it. And now I'm just kind of prepping for that. And my buddy Jamie's going to come up and help me with it so we can make some progress quicker. Yeah. It sounds like we can, yeah. uh, we can actually look forward to you know, water in the tanks and we don't need to wait for the, the light housings and all that. We can just, you get the lights up and then you can put those on later. <laughs> that That's exactly what's going to happen. The cycle is going to run without those lights. Cause I still don't have a single piece of that fixture yet. <laughs> Walt, we've been giving yeah. Raj a lot of crap for the past, I don't know, maybe eight or nine months because he's, he's been in a build right now. And finally we're starting to see some progress here. Eight or nine, it looks really good because that's build. what Raj does. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a process okay it's a process. <laughs> like you know he's also wearing giant skimmers and <laughs> uh i well, only you know a... how it is work always comes first yeah i only have a little bit of news in that um and I, w- I will update everybody on the red sea that's behind me but at the other my other shoulder is this little like this little project that i've been working on it's wet so I just put, I'm leak testing it right now. So I don't know what that's going to be, but it's going to be something. And uh, that'll be exciting. All right. I think we need to get to the, the, the meat of this a little bit quicker than we normally do because, you know, Walt Smith is joining us from Fiji and it's already the next day there. So we have to, and he's been super busy now that Fiji has reopened for coral export. Uh, Walt, why don't you take us back to the seventies when this all started for you? Interesting enough, I've, uh, 
I'm the oldest of 10 children. Okay. So my whole life, um, I always wanted an aquarium, wanted an aquarium in my house, but my parents go, no, we've got too much to take care of. You'll never clean it. It'll be my job. And, you know, the typical things parents sometimes say, and uh, I never had an aquarium uh, and all my friends did. And I just wanted one. So by the time I got to college and I was on my own and uh, moved out of the house, um, I, and I was married uh, and then I was married. Um, I had a chance um, to go out and buy my own aquarium. When Kmart was having a special for $10, you could buy a 10 gallon tank with the lighting and a heater and a pump. And I thought that was a great deal. And I went out and of course I had uh, all the typical neons and frogs and newts and whatever you could buy, you know, in fresh water. And, but it wasn't long before I kept going into the aquarium store and noticing um, all of these beautiful yellow tangs and long nosed butterflies and things. Now keep in mind, this was the very, very beginning of the saltwater hobby. Um, saltwater hobby officially started its first exports around 1968. And I'm talking about 1970. So um, I eventually got hooked and said, I got to have some of those kind of fish. How, what do I do? He says, well, you get an undergravel filter and a pump. That's all you need. And I said, okay, set me up. And I bought a 50 gallon tank. And then before long, and I, I mean, before long, about 18 months later, I had seven tanks in my living room um, and I was killing fish left and right. No, nobody really knew how to take care of them in those days. And um, I, it, I looked at it as a replaceable hobby and I said, we have to do something about this. This is, this is really not the way to treat, you know, marine life. Um, but I love the ocean so much. I loved, I loved the, the, you know, the, the diversity of the animals and the pers different personalities they all had. So I decided I was going to leave. Uh, by this time, I'm now out of college and um, uh, practicing architecture. And I decided I wanted to move to California where the ocean was so I could swim and see this stuff for real life. Little did I know the temperatures in the water in California did not support uh, marine life or coral reefs. But um, that was beyond my knowledge at the time. Moved out there and um, really really loved anyway going to the tide pools and seeing you know sea slugs and starfish and all that stuff so i started sending some of those back home um to the stores that i was known to be in every day um, looking to see what they had new and so forth and started to develop a little bit of a wholesale business that way by going on the weekends you know to the tide pools and collecting animals and sending them back um that led to me deciding to go ahead and try to set up a mini warehouse in the in the back of our where I was um, working as an architect, um, you know, and I set up about twenty tanks, and I I told my partner at the time, look, if we got fish from the Philippines, we can buy for ten cents what they sell for ten dollars here, and that looked like a good idea, so we tried our first shipment. Um, I ordered all these animals, and it. Um, I was pretty naive at the time. So, uh, I was, I pre-sold all the animals that I ordered that came in and what came in was two boxes of anemones and like 150 maroon clowns, which you couldn't keep together. So, um, you know, I learned real quick, 
you know, the, the wholesale end of the business and eventually got into it full time. So that was about nine, somewhere between 1972 and 1973. Um, I'm now a wholesaler in California and I was bringing in fish from um, Florida, basically, um, and supplying the local stores that were around me in, uh, in Los Angeles. Um, I did that till I developed a um, service that uh, involved going around to all the bigger wholesalers, bigger than me, um, and handpicking varieties from them and sending them to the retail stores back in Chicago and eventually other cities throughout the U.S. And the reason people would buy from me is because in, the, in those days, each wholesaler had a specific source. And I was able to go from wholesaler to wholesaler at the time, and there was five of them uh, in Los Angeles because that is the port of entry. You know, the, the reason the stores would, would go to me is because I was able to combine all the varieties of the different wholesalers and send them to them in one shipment. Um, and I always said, if, if I ever make a move from this, it's going to be someplace tropical. Well, in 1989, I got the opportunity um, to visit Tonga. And um, there was a new wholesaler there just getting started, but really didn't know what they were doing. Didn't know how to get the fish alive from Tonga to U.S. So I decided to go down there and help them and uh, get them started um, and so that I can get fish that were alive. And, um, you know, the fish were beautiful. They were just dead. So um, I went down there. I helped him for a few days. And one of the partners turned to me and says, you know, what we really need down here is a, work, uh, a working partner. And I turned to my wife, Deb, and said, we're moving to Tonga. And uh, she said, what? <laughs> you know, we, we both had our own business in, in California. It made no sense at all um, to do that. But uh, it was where my heart was. I, I really, really wanted to live in the tropics. Um, the first thing I did when I, uh, you know, jumped in the water, I, I saw things like, you know, yellow cubicus and anemones everywhere and soft corals. And at that time, corals were not on the market yet. Um, there was no technology available you know, to keep them alive for any length of time. Uh, wet dry filters were just getting introduced. And um, I looked at, I looked around on the water in Tongan and said, this is a bonanza. This is, uh, this is everything I, I've, I've ever wanted to do. And all the fish are here and there's coral here. And I know that we can start supplying coral to the industry. So we moved to Tonga in 1989 and the rest is pretty much history. In 1995, um, there was a regional conference in the area, which means the South Pacific would include it, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Cook Islands, um, you know, Tahiti, all around. All the fisheries departments were in Tonga having a conference. And as part of the conference, um, there was visits to the, to the exporters um, that were exporting, you know, food, fish and things like that, anything involved in fisheries. And the delegation came to my warehouse. When they did that and looked around, one guy pulled me over to the side and said, um, would you ever consider expanding your business to Fiji? I'm, I'm one of the um, principal officers in Fiji, and I'd like to invite you to come and have a look and see if it was possible. Well, in Tonga, we were only shipping about 20 to 30 boxes a week uh, because it was only one airplane a, day, uh, a week. And it was a 737, which is a very small airplane and couldn't take very many boxes. And like I said, it was one flight a week. 
I went over to Fiji and looked around and number one, it was a, a super upgrade for my kids for, for schooling because they were like seven and nine years old at the time. And um, the place itself was an upgrade over Tonga in terms of conveniences and what was available and so forth. And to top it off, there was a 747 going to LAX every day of the week. And I said, we're moving to Fiji. So in 1995, we, we didn't close our business down in Tonga. We just expanded to Fiji and we made that our home, our, our, our home office. Um, we kept Tonga alive until 2010, which was 21 years. Um, we could no longer, uh, you know, deal with dealing with two stations in different countries and so forth. And it became very complicated and I became less and less available to Tonga. So it made sense to close it down. So we've been operating Fiji ever since. And it is now 2024. And um, that puts me in the South Pacific for 29 years. Did any of the original five wholesalers in LA, are they, did they make it? Are they still around? Um, one of them is not, but the rest are. And uh, they are one, one of them's changed names um, from uh, Pacific, uh, Pacific Marine Imports to Quality Marine. Um, you know, so they've changed a little bit, but, uh, you know, um, the other wholesalers that I deal with, they're pretty, they're, we're, we're dealing with in those days are, are still there today, but now they're my customers instead of me being their customer. That's <laughs> well, the way you want to flip that it. That relationship developed because they understood who I was. They saw me coming in every day and handpicking the fish. They knew what I knew, you know, what quality fish looked like. So they trusted me and, uh, it developed into a longstanding relationship. I've been, I've been dealing with the same customers, you know, for since 1989. So the Fiji ban on uh, the export has been, is that 2017, 2018? Is that about when that all happened? It happened on December 27th, 2017. So you can call that 2018 if you want, because it happened over the Christmas holidays. And um, it was a real shock. I was in the, I was in the States uh, at the time. Um, you know, visiting my family for Christmas and so forth. And somebody mentioned to me, hey, you ought to look at Facebook. And so we opened up Facebook and looked at what they were referring to. And it was the Minister of Fisheries announcing at 2 o'clock in the morning on December 27th that um, he's going to put an immediate ban on uh, all live coral and live, live rock being exported out of Fiji. And um, that immediate ban was effective immediately. I looked at my wife and said, this has got to be some mistake. We were big supporters. We, we at, at the time, we employed 160 people. Um, we were shipping to 30 countries around the world. We were the largest fisheries exporter uh, in Fiji. Um, we contributed significantly to the local economy. And I said, there's, there's got to be something wrong here. So I jumped on the next plane because she stayed behind because we were still in the middle of our vacation and we were on our way to go skiing in Canada. And... Um, I said, I'll be back in a couple of days. Don't worry. Well, I wasn't back in a couple of days. Um, my wife finally joined me in Fiji um, in, in March, um, knowing that, you know, this just wasn't going to, this wasn't going to happen. She came for a couple of weeks, um, grabbed some clothes and went back um, to, to LA to sell our house because we knew that this was going to be a long and drawn out affair. Um, I stuck with it and we got, good lawyers involved 
and we dealt with the Department of Environment. Uh, the Department of Fisheries, by the way, um, I forgot to mention, um, just less than two months later, took the, lifted the ban and said, we sorry, we, we did make a mistake. Um, you know, the ban is lifted. Here's your permission back to export. However, the only way you can export live coral and live rock is with a, a permit uh, from the CITES organization, which is run out of Switzerland. For those of you that don't know, CITES stands for the Convention of International Trade in Endangered Species. And every um, piece of coral that's shipped from any country in the world has to be accompanied by a CITES permit. And CITES is, is an organization that's run out of Geneva, Switzerland. It's a worldwide organization. And countries sign on to it as a signatory that they support you know, the CITES organization. So um, what happens next is you get a, a, a quota established by a scientific authority that comes down and they do a study on, you know, what you have available and, and what the quota would be appropriate as. And they generally organize the quota so it's less than 5% of the resource. So they call that sustainable. In our case, it's 0.001% of the resource is, is, uh, is, is what's been established that we harvest. So um, we're more than uh, sustainable, but it, um, it's the Department of Environment that issues the CITES permits. And they were the ones that refused to issue the permit, even though we had the permission from fisheries. So we had to get go through a series of studies, um, EIA assessments, which are environmental impact assessments. And then we had to go through non-detriment finding assessments, and we went to, through four of them. Um, there was just so much red tape and paperwork involved. It took six years. Um, to go through all that to finally get the approval from government. And it took a new government. Last December, we had an election. And um, the, the government that was in place at the time um, lost and new people came in that were more interested in moving the economy forward. And they approached me and said, we're going to help you and we're going to get you back in business because we want your contribution to the economy to be reinstated. And that was uh, a, a really good thing for me that, um, that that had happened that way. And we had now support from both the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Fisheries. And um, they're being beautiful about it. Um, they're issuing the CITES permits I want. And now we have open communication, which is something I didn't have for six years. So that's basically why, why we're allowed now to export the coral. So with you had mentioned that this is already a sustainable thing. So one of my questions was, do you think that the reef benefited from being down, you know, the export being down six years, or it just seems like maybe now you just have an abundance an overabundance of, of coral that you've been farming? Well, if you remember the number I just quoted you, uh, 0.001%, there's really no significant difference between the impact the aquarium trade had on the reef and what it is today. Um, where the difference comes in is in, um, you know, global warming, uh, bleaching, uh, which is, you know, uh, a result of global warming and, um, you know, and, and local development, you know, close to the seashore. Um, we have had two very serious um, global warming events. The first one was in the year 2000 uh, when I was still exporting coral. And um, the other one was uh, a couple of years later. And uh, since then, we've had sporadic incidents or sporadic events 
that have happened around Fiji, but nothing that has really caused, um, you know, um, as much significant damage as the one in 2000, which killed about 80% of the coral in Fiji, um, and the one in 2004, which uh, was had a very strong impact, but lo localized uh, ba basically near our area. What we have learned through these events is that the reef does respond. Um, within five years, uh, the areas where 80% of the coral was lost was all replenished and, and, and flourishing again. So the reef does bounce back from things like that. But to say that, you know, just because we haven't been collecting in our area um, for six years has the, has the coral reef itself, you know, expanded. And I would say that that, you know, that's really not the right way to look at it because of the impact that the aquarium trade actually has. Um, and, 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 you know, we also continued our aid program, which, you know, plants uh, about 60,000 corals a year. And that was all, all of those corals get planted on the reef because there was no trade, obviously. And, um, you know, that, that did have an impact on, on, you know, the expansion of the coral reef itself. If you think about the fact that um, for every coral that we frag and plant on the reef, that coral in its mind thinks it's an adult because the polyps are already taken from an adult. So um, they're basically cloned. And that's, that, that's what, that's the, the proper term for the word fragging. You're cloning corals. And um, when you think about each one of these corals every year spawns, um, the number of new corals being, new clones being planted on the reef um, and then spawning every year, nobody really knows how many of those spawns from each coral is successful, but I would suggest it's somewhere in the hundreds. One coral spawns millions of, of gametes every year um, around October, November here in Fiji. And um, those spawns become babies somewhere um, as they settle and, 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 and start to grow. So in that way, um, yes, the, the reef does have an opportunity to take advantage of all of that, you know, extra, um, you know, spawning taking place because of the clones that are being planted. But um, I'd like to say that the sticking to the original, um, you know, theory that uh, the aquarium trade doesn't have much of an impact especially when you consider um, the way Fiji works. We work on what's called the Goli Goli system. And the Goli Goli system basically is um, that every village in Fiji that's close to the seashore has its own fishing rights that are boundaries in the ocean. Each one of those boundaries is called their Goli Goli. So in order to deal, in order to, for anybody even to snorkel in that area, you have to have the permission of the village itself, the village chief itself to allow that. So when tourism, you know, takes out divers and, you know, from the different resorts and so forth, they all have agreements with the different Goli Goli owners. Well, this, the same is true of, um, you know, the aquarium trade. I have to go and make an agreement and a contract, which usually involves a bag of money and a, and a bottle of whiskey um, to the chief to allow me to uh, harvest in his area. And that um, contract could last for either one year or five years, depending on the agreement we have. We harvest coral in one area, in one goalie goalie only. Now to, to say, um, 
if, if you consider the size of the resource, which is the second largest um, resource in the South Pacific is Fiji. The first largest, of course, would be the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. But we have a, an immense, um, you know, um, economic zone, which covers a lot of coral reef, uh, more than any other country in the South Pacific. And um, in my Goldie Goldie that I operate, you could uh, kind of think about it as a piece of pie and try to cut the skinniest piece of pie you've ever caught in your, cut in your life. Um, and the rest of the pie is left untouched. Um, that's kind of how it works. So to say that we're de depleting the coral reefs in Fiji, first of all, we're only working in one gully gully. And that gully gully is a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of the entire resource. In fact, you can barely notice it on a big map. So um, that's also what a lot of people don't understand how this works. And a lot of people, you know, especially here in Fiji, or when you mention the word coral harvesting to people that don't know anything about it, they think you're in the water and you're clear cutting and um, taking everything from the area and moving on to a new area. That was perceived of my activities when I first moved to Fiji. There was headlines in the in the paper that said a new kind of pirate moves to Fiji and, you know, th those kind of things. And that, that, that's that's what I've had to deal with my whole life, trying to explain to people exactly what harvest is all about and the impact that it actually has compared to the awareness that it creates. And, I mean, look at you guys. Look at this entire hobby. We have more conservationists in this hobby than probably walk the earth. And, you know, and because everybody that spends the time and energy and you know, gains the knowledge of, of what, you know, coral is all about and what coral reef is all about, you know, love it. You know, there's an old saying, you only protect that what you love. And people love, um, people that have an aquarium in their in their living room have an opportunity not only to, to see the coral reef um, as it exists in the wild, but also fall in love with the resource itself <laughs> and want to come to areas like this to see it for real. That's what I did. You know, my first trip to the South Pacific was Tahiti. You know, as soon as I got married, um, you know, we, we went off to Tahiti. And that was my first example of South Pacific um, reef. And I was blown away. And it was only because I knew about it because I had aquariums. So does that does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, it transitions right into what I really want to talk about here. And that's, that's all the coral that uh, Fiji offers, you know. We talk about all the acros and all the you know leathers that come out of Fiji and the the brilliant yellow leathers that everybody loves so much. <laughs> um, this is a two pronged question. The first is, what if any regulations do they have on specific kinds of corals, or is it just kind of like open season for export, or are there any regulations around that? And then, what's your what's your favorite coral that comes out of Fiji that you like to export? You would ask me that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how about I say all? But um, I, I guess if you're going to narrow it down, and and it, and it probably would, you know, what what first jumps into my mind is, you know, some of the species of Acropora I think are just completely uh, amazing, like Acropora cicali, uh, what we call tricolor, is a, a beautiful coral in in my mind, and everybody has their personal you know differences. But one of the ones that's uh, most interesting and I really love is uh, uh, 
tenuous and uh, tenuous. And that Acropora um, has just been um, classified as being uh, indigenous to Fiji only. Um, there was tenuous, you know, available from Australia and, uh, and other areas of the, of the Pacific, but um, they have since discovered that the, they are different. They are a different genus. They are not a genus. They are, a, 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 you know, a different species. Um, and uh, true um, uh, tenuous is only found in Fiji. And um, and I'm going to really uh, use a lot of that um, for my farming efforts because um, it's not extremely plentiful. Although in other, some areas you go to, you find fields of it. Um, and like they say, everything is, um, you know, common somewhere. Um, just like a good example would be the Centropagi deberi, you know, that's found and or the Cirilibris margeri. Uh, and of course, I guess, you know, the backstory deberi is named after my wife and um, margeri is named after Bruce Carlson's wife. And we're both friends, you know, that found uh, a fish on the same exact reef that happens to be um, indigenous to that area only. Um, same with um, tenuous. We're, we're hoping that, you know, I can farm it and multiply it that way um, because, uh, you know, uh, exporting a lot of it in the beginning was probably not a good idea until I find a very big area full of it. Uh, but we just find it here and there every now and then. So um, that, I guess, is, you, you could say at the moment, is one of my favorite corals. Yellow leather was something, you know, that uh, I discovered. Actually, uh, uh, Fiji has it, uh, Tonga has it as well. Um, and I discovered it there. And when I was with a friend of mine that was diving, he, he pointed out and said, look at all these yellow carpet anemones. I go, that's leather coral, man. <laughs> you know, they're not anemones, but they do look like anemones. They also happen to be the hardest coral that, that I export um, to, to ship alive. They're very, very finicky when it comes to shipping them in a bag. Um, you have to really, I did a lot of experiments in different ways, you know, to, to make it. And, you know, we're, we're fairly successful now, but in the beginning years, it was a nightmare trying to get that stuff to the other side of the world alive. So, um, you know, those. Same goes for fragging it, right? I mean, fragging it seems to be a, a pretty difficult or tedious process as well. Is there any anything that you guys have discovered to help it live longer or frag it while you're there? Or is that even something you guys do? Um, although we, we frag about, uh, we fragged about 100, uh, I mean, 1.4 million corals since we started in 1998, fragging corals, okay? Um, it's almost ridiculous to think about fragging soft coral because you have to see how plentiful it is to begin with. I mean, it's everywhere. It's like, it's like the weed of the ocean. I mean, soft coral, soft coral is growing everywhere and they grow over other, other reefs and so forth. But the biggest difficulty in, in farming soft coral, at least in the ocean, in tanks it's different, but I'm gonna talk about what I do in the ocean because I don't, I don't frag things and hold them in tanks like you do in the US. Um, we somehow you, you can cut uh, leather corals, any kind of leather corals, you know, with a razor blade into pieces and attach them to a base and they will grow. But if you're going to do that in the ocean, number one, to attach it to the base, you can't use super glue on, on leather coral. It doesn't work. Um, you can't use 
any other attachment method other than say some kind of string or wire or rubber band to attach them to a to a, a you know a uh, a base and in our case we use pegs uh, for for a couple of reasons um, I developed the peg with a long stem on it um, so that stem holds it to the rack in the ocean so it doesn't blow away in the current um, and then when the coral has grown big enough and we want to plant it on the reef that stem becomes instrumental in being able to find nooks and crannies and holes on the reef to be able to screw the coral right into um, the reef and it, and it holds there and that's where it spends the rest of its life. So, um, and you'll see a lot of this on the on, on the aid video that we have on the aid website. Um, and you see how we do it and how we plant it on the reef. But when you, when you, when you try that with leather coral in, in the ocean and currents come along, um, it doesn't stick. You know, it doesn't, the, the rubber band either cuts through the coral itself and then the coral is free and just goes blow, and blows off into the, into the current. Um, and we have such low success rate of trying to keep soft corals on the peg in, in the currents of the ocean that it just, it, it's a futile effort. So even though we've done it and we've been successful at, at, at producing some numbers, it's nothing that we look, look at in the future and say, we're going to be able to do this in a big way. Um, just not, just not going to happen. Uh, we're going to have maybe 2% success rate in keeping the corals where they were when we put them there to begin with. So, you know, we, we come back a week later and we find a bunch of empty pegs with rubber bands on them. And that's about it. <laughs> so, and I get that, I get that question asked a lot. And so it's, it's something I've explained to several people and, you know, that's what you really have to understand, the difference between doing it in a tank and doing it in the ocean. So what is the number one question that you are being asked right now? Now that Fiji is open, you had mentioned before we started the podcast today that you've just been getting inundated with a bunch of questions. So what's like, uh, are you seeing any trends right now? What are people asking? They're asking well, what kind of corals are available and, um, you know, how soon can you ship them? Well, um, a, a good way to answer that question is to go ahead and look at the CITES website itself. Um, it's easy enough to access. And you go to uh, export quotas and you and then you type in or, or select the country Fiji and you see our quota. And on there, uh, you will see that we have roughly 60 species uh, of corals available for export. Um, one of the questions people ask me is, is there any difference in the corals you, you export now? Has there been any, any limitations, um, you know, from the old days to now? And um, yes, there has, and it, in a very small case, and it actually happened before the shutdown, just before the shutdown, so it continued. And that's in the case of Plerigyra, you know, bubble coral. And some scientists um, along the way um, was uh, put in the idea that Plerigyra does not come from Fiji. So why is it on the Fiji quota? Well, I could, uh, we, we have two types of Plerigyra in Fiji. That's uh, Simplex and uh, Sinuosa. And if you wanted either one of those bubble corals, I can go out and bring you a hundred in the day. Um, yes, it is available in Fiji, but Cites was arguing that it's not, and it's one of the corals that we have to limit um, and to keep the argument simple and to keep the rest of the corals yeah. open, I just gave in and said, sure, why not? We don't need to ship bubble coral. So we gave it up. 
And so those two species are no longer available in Fiji. But to be honest, they weren't available for about the last year, you know, before 2017 anyway, because that's when this argument started. Um, and we proved it. We sent, we sent pieces to Washington that we harvested in Fiji, and they were under the impression that we were importing them from other countries. And I said, all right, fair enough. We give up. Uh, we won't ship bubble coral but we still have 60 other corals we can export. And, um, you know, right down to Cataphilia and some of the other ones that might be banned, you know, in the EU and other areas of the world uh, because they consider them rare. Um, now, when you say something like Cataphilia, we, we see maybe one or two pieces, you know, every now and then. Um, most of it is too deep for our divers to get to um, in our area. and other areas like Indonesia, it's found in the shallows and the mud. So, it, you know, different, it's interesting that same kind of corals grow in different conditions uh, in, di in, di in different parts of the world. Um, that's true of fish as well. Um, in Tonga, we can catch lemon peels in uh, two meters of water. Um, in Fiji, we have to catch lemon peels in 10 meters or more. Um, you know, 15 meters of water, that's where we get our lemon peels. So it's, it's all, you know, different, different habitats, um, and, and different conditions create, uh, you know, different ways that we collect uh, certain things. I know one of the uh, things that I keep hearing about, people are really excited about the possibility of getting that yellow <laughs> leather, right? That seems to be like the big thing. As soon as Fiji was announced, that was the next sentence that came out of everybody's mouth. It's like, oh my God, we're going to get the, F the Fiji yellow leather. And I saw that uh, Jim at eye-catching just posted a picture of, I don't know how many boxes he got, but there are a ton of boxes from you just recently. Tell me there's some yellow leathers in that shipment. There were yellow leathers in that shipment. <laughs> 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 um, he actually was on in on the first export ever, you know, of, you know, since the ban out of Fiji, I actually had uh, four customers in the same shipment. Jim certainly got um, the largest shipment. Um, just simply because he ordered the largest shipment. Um, everybody is pretty much getting what they want um, now. Uh, my, our only problem is um, the first nice. week we exported was last week. It's Sunday now. So, the, the you know, this prior week, um, I actually put in three all-nighters. I feel like a young man again, like I used to be. <laughs> you know, but we, we, shipped, <laughs> we were shipping night and day. Um, we shipped to not only two shipments, um, to um, the U.S., we also shipped Hong Kong, Singapore, and New Zealand um, in the same week. So we were shipping nonstop for four days. Um, my crew was didn't care because they were so happy to have their job back that they were just you know working night and day with smiles on their face. That wasn't possible in the old days. I had to get three crews to you know, pull it off. And now they're going, no, don't hire anywhere else. We want these hours. You know, finally, you know, we're able to work again. Because you got to remember, when the ban happened, we went from 160 people to 40. And the 160 people were almost all punching overtime. Uh, the, and when we went down to 40 people, they all went to half, half, half hours. They went on roster where we can only bring in so many on Monday and so many on Tuesday. So we tried to, you know, alternate them. So they all got a little work. So they went from that condition for six years to now working four all nighters in a row. <laughs> 
and happy to do it. So, so the uh, were you able to get most of that crew back? I mean, 120 people, that's yeah. a lot of people yeah. to lose their jobs. Um, no, yeah. we um, the divers, yes. The, the coral divers, you know, um, went on to other jobs like spearfishing and so forth, you know, something they could do in the water. And they were all waiting, you know, for this, um, you know, opportunity to, to, you know, present itself again. Um, because they make a lot of money in our business. They get paid by the piece. The more pieces they catch, of course, they all have to be screened and, and approved. But the, And that, that keeps them collecting good ones because they know if they get a bad one or one that I don't, that I don't want or won't accept for the industry standard, um, that they won't be paid for it. So they're all excellent divers and they know, and they know what to do. Um, they all got their jobs back and they're happy as, as anything. Um, and, but the, the pack crew's going, no, no, well, you don't need to hire a lot more people. They all got other jobs anyway in the last six years. We want these hours. I go, you're not going to be able to keep up with this. Come on, let's get real. So, um, we will be right now. We only have one pack crew. We normally worked with three when we were making a shipment, one would do inverts, one would do fish and one would do, um, you know, the corals and they all had to be packing simultaneously to keep the orders in sequential box numbers. If you know what that means. So for shipping a hundred boxes in a shipment, you know, order a had to be box one through 10 or whatever it was. And to be able to pull that off, you have to have all the different crews working the same order at the same time. So right now what we're down to is we pack fish on one day and we pack coral on the next day. It's not, a, it's not very convenient for my wholesalers, but it's something they have to put up with for the moment until we, you know, are able to expand into <laughs> the way it used to be. And we shipped almost, we shipped 194 boxes our first week. For people that aren't familiar with Island Life, can you tell us what kind of impact this makes on people's lives in Fiji. Like to, to have a business like yours back running again after a six year hiatus, right? 120, 160 jobs. How big of an impact is that? that well, you got to consider the fact that um, for every employee I have, they're, they're more than likely, in most cases, the breadwinner of the family. And when we say family in Fiji, we don't mean your brothers and sisters. We mean, the whole inner structure of the aunts and uncles and, you know, um, all the little nieces and whatever they all, they all in the South Pacific, it's common in Tonga as well. Um, they call each other, my brother, the, that's my brother when really it's more of a cousin, you know, kind of thing. So the families are pretty big. And in a lot of cases, um, we hire a lot of women. And the women are the breadwinner of the family because either the, the their husband has, you know, um, been injured, um, sick, can't work anymore, retired, whatever. Um, and the wife is holding on to the income for the family. So um, our pet crew is made up of probably 80% women. Um, and, um, the, and the divers are all men, of course, you know, that's the way it is. Women do not dive. Um, and so we have a, a big diversity of men, women, and, and what their different responsibilities are. But in almost all cases, one employee could be taking care of as, of as many as 20 people. So you talk about impact. Um, 
it's it's considerable. And now that they have not only the you know are they only working a couple of days a week on part time, um, they're working on overtime. Their their salaries have increased immensely. I I, I can't give you the percent percentage exactly, but um, immensely the, the the payroll our payroll has tripled, you know, in one week. So and that's going to only grow as we get on more staff and more crew because we des- desperately need more staff and more crew. But most of them we're going to have to train because, you know, those 120 people that we had to let go, you know, back six years ago have found other work and, you know, are, are doing other jobs. A lot of them are, are, are calling and saying, can we have that job back because we liked it more? Uh, it's more of a family. It's more of a, you know, we, we kept our, fa- our, our work attitude uh, very, very casual and um, friendly. I called it my family. That's not quite the case in Fiji. Um, it's run by very stern um, businessmen that run with a lot of rules and a lot of, um, and I guess you could say I'm a lot more relaxed than most people. I'm, I'm the white guy that came down here and, you know, <laughs> and is a little different than most. <laughs> Let's uh, let's transition into the aid project. I really want to know: uh, Could you discuss your role in the aid project, and then what it's currently doing to assist in conservation efforts? Um, the aid project actually um, sort of spawned out of our um, trying to grow coral for the aquarium trade, and um, you know we experimented in 1998 with you know growing coral on racks, and like I mentioned earlier, in our first year we grew about 64,000 pieces of coral clones and um, the experiment went very well Uh, almost all of it survived and I thought the aquarium trade would be interested in in buying this stuff but uh, it turns out that they were more interested in just sticking with the wild caught and weren't really that interested in um, buying coral that was on big cement plugs and so forth so um, I was let down a bit by the fact that you know, the aquarium trade wasn't accepting this as much as I thought they would. We sold a little bit of it, but not not to the volume that I thought it would be. And I also had aspirations of having this replace, you know, taking coral from the wild. Um, and that was far from um, what happened. Um, and then what I soon learned when I went to my first reef palooza or whatever um, during those days, um, I looked around and my wife and I are, you know, looking at all these people with their flats and these tiny little what we call buttons pieces of coral smaller than my baby fingernail and deb and i look at each other and we go are people actually buying this you know we're we're used to selling pieces of coral you know not you know little tiny things that yeah you 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 get out one of these you know (laughs) to see the coral (laughs) and it was just it just took me by surprise. I, I didn't know that. But what I realized is, yes, they're getting my coral, my wild coral from Fiji. They're, they're fragging it down themselves. And so it became a domestic supply versus an international supplier or a supply that you needed to import. So I said, so what are we going to do with this? I don't want to stop doing this because, number one, I was really into it. I was really learning a lot. and It was fun. And I had a whole crew that was planting coral. And I... I wanted to keep them moving. So we decided, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do the reef restoration work and um, 
we can, you know, start planting the coral on the reef right around the areas and find areas that need help. Find villages that, you know, need more fishing grounds. Find um, areas that have been bleached and need coral, you know, replaced. And so that's how the AID project was born. Um, AID stands for Aquaculture Development for the Environment. And to take that a step further, we decided that, you know, we, we're going to make this a village product project. Um, if we got enough donations, you know, during the time when we were exporting coral, WSI, you know, my main company, had no problem funding the aid project. Uh, when the coral ban came, um, it was impossible. There was no income. So we couldn't fund it. It cost, cost quite a bit of money to set up one village with a coral farm. Um, and and pay those divers every every week to go out and plant more coral and keep it keep it moving. So we said if we donate um, these coral farms to the village, um, the villages should be somewhat close to a resort that has a dive program, so that um, the divers now have another destination that they can choose um, that goes um, to either Shark Reef or Dragon Reef or whatever they want to call the different destinations they go to, now they can add to that list a coral farm. But when it's a little different because they actually get to participate in planting coral on the reef. And how that happens and, and how I designed it is that the coral, uh, the coral farm is uh, owned by the, by the reef, by the uh, village itself. And when the visitors come, there's a visitor, there's a, a a village representative there that can sell them coral, uh, not for souvenirs, but to plant on the reef. And you'll be surprised how many tourists are actually interested in paying the village for their coral so they can help plant it on the reef so they can go, you know, number one, it's a real feel-good experience to be able to do that. And they can go home and they can tell their friends and neighbors that, you know, I've I planted coral on a Fiji reef. And not only that, I want to go next year to that same reef again and see the coral that I, that I helped plant. So uh, this all became real in, the, in, in, a, in a resort on the Coral Coast, um, which actually was a coral walk. It didn't even need to dive. It was called the Hideaway Resort. And we tried that for many years. And it was so successful that other resorts were sending their people um, to do the coral walk at the Hideaway Resort. And it, uh, in 2007, it won the International Ecotourism Award, um, you know, for an ecotourism activity. So we decided to expand on that. And now there's m several villages um, here, uh, not, not far from us, and also in the Northern Islands uh, that carry on this program. So that's what the aid pro project has evolved into versus supplying the aquarium trade. It's now uh, evolved into an ecotourism activity that uh, people can enjoy when they come to Fiji. However, um, the aquaculture coral is still plentifully available to the aquarium trade if anybody wants to buy it instead of buying it from a local fragger. Yeah, I, know, I, th I think that that's, a, that's such a great, you know, zoos always offer the adopt a, adopt a tiger or adopt a whatever. I just feel like this is so much more tangible. And if, you're, if you are somebody that is lucky enough that, to get to go to Fiji, you know, every year, every other year, whatever, to go visit that would be, would be, would be super awesome. And then even to see the environmental impact of global warming, 
you know, I hate to say it, but you go back one year and well, your coral happens to be bleached or whatever that, that you take those stories with you. You know, those are those are huge, huge moments, I think. That's true. And a lot of people, well, first of all, people uh, aren't, aren't quite prepared for what they see when they get to a coral farm. A typical coral farm and our personal ones, we, we have about, you know, 20 racks on a farm. But for the village ones, we donate 10 racks. You got to remember that each rack is worth about $450. So that's $4,500 just in racks. But each rack holds over 400 corals. So when they when they get in the water and, the, and, and, and they open their eyes and they look and they see these 10 racks all laid out together, they're looking at 4,000 frags you know, all growing, you know, at, at, a, at an amazing rate in the ocean. And if you want to talk about, you know, quick growth rates, um, tr- try doing it in the ocean instead of a tank and see what you got. Um, you got natural food source, natural light, <laughs> yeah. the most absolutely natural conditions you can possibly ask for. And you don't have to go through all of the experimentation and calling Sanjay and say, Hey, what light do I need? You know, and all, you know, all that stuff. It's just, it works. It's the ocean. It's where the stuff grows to begin with. So we don't have to supply a thing, especially power. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just a more natural way to do it. So the corals respond better and they grow faster. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really quite an experience to see a coral farm for your first time and then realize you can take part in it. So to put you on okay. the spot, <laughs> every, <laughs> every year you used to do the, this MACNA raffle, and it was a trip to Fiji to visit your facility, uh, and I believe dinner with you and Deb. It was right. a whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So why don't, why don't we do that again for Reefstock Chattanooga? See, putting you on the spot. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm all for it. Uh, who's, <laughs> um, no, I, it, it, the, the people, you know, I, I'm still, I still communicate with several, several of the winners um, that, you know, did win. Uh, they, they still email me and, and, you know, say, hey, I'm coming to Fiji again. You know, can we get together? You know, stuff like that. It was yep. a huge success, you know, for MACNA to be able to, to offer that that trip every year. And we were more than happy to do it. And those were in the glory days. Once things are back to normal, it's just going to take probably more than the next year, um, you know, on a, on a constant growing sure. process. We would be happy to look at that. But if another organization wants to come in and participate fund-wise, um, we're ready to do it immediately. And I think it's a great idea because it gives people more, you know, it, it inspires people. You know, once once you get to see the coral reef itself, it inspires stewardship. Yeah. It inspires people to want to take care of it. It inspires people to want to influence those that are creating the demise of the coral reef. And it's not the aquarium trade. It's the global warming issues that we have with, you know, the, the, the carbon and everything else that's being, you know, um, yeah. th- th- that really has to be addressed. So the more awareness we create, you know, and that's that's what I say, you know, many times over and over, is that the aquarium trade itself is in such a position to influence, you know, this this um, whole idea 
you know, uh, of, of creating more awareness um, and how, what the world needs to do um, to start turning that tide, to start getting people to realize um, we need to change some of the things we're doing in order to save the coral reef. You know, let's face it, coral is, you know, the, the, the ocean is over 75% of the surface of Earth. And uh, there's a lot going on down there. A lot going on there we still don't even know about. I think what we've got is uh, 2025. <laughs> we're going to be looking forward to doing a Walt Smith sponsored trip I, to I Fiji. I would love to do it at the first <laughs> renewed MACNA. They've got a new board, new enthusiasm, uh, just and are revamping the way that they're doing things. So that was kind of one of the things that they they've learned over time is that people wanted something different, right? You can't just keep doing the same exact thing over and over again. Uh, you have to pay attention to what your consumers are wanting, what the, what your customers want. And I think they're responding to that. So they haven't really released a lot of information on what their plans are this year. So yeah, I know they've got mermaids. I don't know what they've got lined up as far as speakers are concerned, but they're doing speakers differently this time. Um, instead of having them throughout the day, every day, I think they're doing just one day of speakers. If I, if I read that correctly, and then it's only a two day event now versus a three day event. So a lot of changes that have taken place. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what develops. Yeah. I always love Mecca. It was a, it was a, it was a great event. Um, it was a good chance for absolutely all, all of the aquarium geeks to get together and, uh, you know, see each other maybe yeah. only once a year. And that was it. That was the time they did it. And uh, because, you know, coming from different cities and, and so forth. But um, it was always a great event. It, it brought everybody yes. together. Yeah. And it, it launched a lot of a lot of businesses in this industry. It made a lot of friendships and a lot of connections. So. This is definitely well, a good time. If I if I can take the liberty to compare, um, I've been to a few reef paloozas in in my time, um, not many, but probably half a dozen or so or, or more, um, and I've been to most of the Macnas. Um, and what I found is that Macna was always more social. Um, the reef palooza was more like a like a like a trade show, retail trade show, where people just filed through and went up and down aisles and looked and bought coral, which is great. That's that's what it was supposed to be all about. But it wasn't anywhere near as social as MACNA, um, at, at least what I found on the ones I went to. I mean, MACNA had the events at night and they had the stuff going on and people talking out in the hallway and so forth because it was held in a resort, not a warehouse, you know, and, you know, yep. that, you know, things um, just seemed like it was a whole different venue. Than, than a reef palooza. And reef palooza certainly um, serves its purpose of people being able to go and access a lots of different kinds of coral and meet the growers and so forth. But it was just different. And um, mm -hmm. I, I think there's probably room for both to survive side by side, but I, I could be wrong about that. Oh, but what I know, I live in the South. Each show, it's, <laughs> it's interesting how each show has its own personality. You know, reef palooza has its niche magna had its niche um aquashella is totally different than everything else reef stock is different than the other shows it's so it's it's just fascinating how all of these different types of shows have survived in such a small industry 
and they've thrived. They've done really well. And people, obviously people have their favorites, but you'll see a lot of the same faces going to each one. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see over the next few years how that really shakes out. But right. It's going to be fun. Well, when when you're a coral junkie, you're a coral junkie, and you're going to go to every event you can th- you, you know you can afford <laughs> yeah. to go to. And uh, you know, I, I found, you know, I, I would. There's a lot of people I would only see once a year, and that was at Magna. And you know, I, I know a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Same. Yeah. There's only so many so, people we can talk to about this. I mean, let's be honest. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I wanted I to make mention before before we wrapped up, though, I wanted to talk about uh, that that snazzy shirt you're wearing there and uh, some some Blue Ocean Design stuff. Well, uh, thank you for mentioning that. Um, Blue Ocean Design is, uh, again, you know, during the shutdown, I had to, you know, come up with some way to, um, you know, earn a living. And um, the fact that I had an architectural background, which also includes a lot of art background, um and the fact that Deb was gone uh, for a while, her mother is very ill, 96 years old, and Deb is taken upon the role of, of being the only daughter to go and take care of her in the States. Um, I'm left alone here, um, you know, with the exception of FaceTime, um, you know, being able to talk to Deb every day. So what do I do at night? Um, I decided to start playing around with some artwork. Um, I created a lot of art, art pieces, and some of them I said, you know, I could probably make placemats out of these and you know something else you know to sell you know for just uh wall art and i went to the guy that i thought could you know help me make placemats and he said have you ever thought of making shirts and i said no but that's an interesting idea and he immediately went on his computer program and took my design and transferred it to a shirt pattern and i said that's awesome so it turned out to where uh bod blue ocean designs um, became, uh, you know, we, we sell four items, um, wall art, where it, be, where it all began. Shirts is definitely the biggest item that we sell. And then we also sell sarongs or sulus, uh, you know, wraparounds for, for ladies. And, um, and we sell, uh, what else do we sell? Um, anyway, we sell four items. Uh, I'm forgetting the other one for, for right now. But um, the shirts are all based on uh, my original art that is based on um, coral or fish photographs that we've taken underwater or in our tanks. So it all originates from our original fo- uh, photographic um, library, um, with the exception of one or two which uh, that were, were not underwater, palm trees in the backyard or something that also made great designs, but all South, South Pacific stuff. And... Um, what we've decided to do is the sale of these will help support the aid because I needed aid to keep moving. I needed it to, you know, be funded by someone. It wasn't being funded by me anymore because we, we no longer had the income or we had very limited income. So what I was able to develop um, all these designs, what a perfect example of a way to give back to aid through where it all began in the first place. Everything that you see this happens to be a yellow leather design that I have on that I've abstracted the heck out of. So you can't really recognize it that much anymore. But if I showed you the original photo, you'd see where it came from and how it developed. So it's been a lot of fun. And it's, 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 a, it's a year old company. We just started it. And, um, you know, the, the website is very easy to remember. It's 
bodfiji.com. And when, and when you buy a shirt or any other product, um, you will note that um, part of that money goes to support AIDS so we can help the villages um, and give them racks and, and give them trainers to teach them how to grow coral and so forth. So it all ties together. And uh, we're, we're pretty pleased to see the growth of, of Blue Ocean Designs uh, slowly but surely coming in. We're getting a lot more followers these days. And um, I'd love to see the aquarium trade support it. Um, and, you know, Mark Livingston has some shirts. Um, Tulio has some shirts. Um, Martin Moe has a shirt. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple people. But, um, you know, there's there's people in the industry, um, you know, that, that I know as friends, um, you know, have gotten shirts and they're happy to wear them. Uh, uh, Dr. Mac or um, no, Dr. Tim has a shirt. Um, and so, and they wear it at the, you know, the different events they go to and so forth. And I'm very pleased to see that, but I, you know, if you have a favorite shirt, like a blue tang or something like that, I'd love, you know, go on the site. You'll see it there. We have a shirt called tang gang and it's full of blue tangs. And, and you'll love it. <laughs> so like that's I said, that, that's been what I've done as a sideline and something to keep me busy at night, you know, being here alone. That's been gone for six months now. So um, she's coming back in a couple of weeks for, for a short visit. But, um, you know, it's more important for her to take care of her mom right now. And I support that. Well, I, I want to be cognizant of your time. Obviously, this is a very busy time for you and it's very welcome, I would imagine. So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get out of here today? You, you guys have been That's great awesome. hosts. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Um, you know, and hopefully we can get the word out. You know, Thanks we, so much we for coming on. People to understand, you know, what conservation is all about. Um, we can get people to understand that harvesting wild coral from the reef is not a bad thing for the aquarium trade because it's so, it's so sustainable. The coral actually grows faster than we, than we can harvest it. Um, and also there's the fact that we grow, we, we plant as many as we, as we export. Uh, those numbers are, are, are valid. Um, you know, our quotas are, are quite large, but we never ship the entire quota. Um, like, for example, we have 40,000 acros on our, on our CITES quota. I don't think we've ever had a year where we ship more than 20,000. So we stay well within the quota. So that even that even more makes it more sustainable. But um, there are people out there that say, oh, I can't buy anything wild from the harvest, you know, wild harvested uh, because it's hurting the reef. That's just not true. And uh, we need people to know that. And um, the more people that are educated about it and understand it more uh, realize that. So we want that knowledge to spread. And uh, we, we all at the same time, we want the aquaculture to continue because that's a good thing. Um, and they work hand in hand. So that's that would be pretty much what I have to say as a final statement. Walt, I want to thank you so much for being on Reef Therapy with us today. It sounds like uh, if we can get out there, uh, we can hang out with you and <laughs> go check out all the cool stuff you've got and all the farms and everything <laughs> that you've got going on in Fiji. So we'll, we'll try and make it out there for a little uh, Reef Builders uh, video session or something like that. Well, you'd be surprised how many tourists, you know, um, not tourists, how many hobbyists do come to Fiji um, that contact me. And um, it's 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 they have open invitation anytime to come and visit our facility to, you know, to talk with me, to, you know, to see what we do firsthand. Um, uh, we, we're, we're not private. 
Um, and we're open to any hobbyist that comes to Fiji that wants to visit WSI. They're more than welcome. Uh, Walt, thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate it. I want to say thanks to ICP Analysis for being our sponsor. And uh, we will see everybody in the next one. It was nice talking to you. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.